In this episode of Startups of the Rest of Us, Einar Volset and I talk about an alternative form of startup funding, as well as run through the history of startup funding as we see it. This is Startups of the Rest of Us, episode 420. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Einar. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. Nice job catching that, man. I didn't I didn't brief you in advance that you had to say, say your name, huh? I was, I was like, wait, is, is Mike supposed to say something? <laughs> Mike's not on. So for, for listeners out there who don't know you, your name is, is you pronounce it Einar. I call you Einar, uh, Einar Volset. As close as my wife gets it, so I think that's fair. Good, good. You and I have started, we've co-founded Tiny Seed together. That's at tinyseed.com. Dot com. But folks, you know, may not have heard of you. I know that you are a multi-time founder. You went through Y Combinator in 2009. And these days, well, you were a developer as well. You're a CS professor at Cornell. You've done quite a bit of stuff. And you, these days are, you kind of work in private equity, right? You're like a private equity scout. Yeah, kind of. Um, I, I sort of got into that space uh, after my last exit. And uh, actually, what jokingly have what I jokingly call uh, sort of a startup investment bank currently, where most of the stuff I do is, is help founder exits and you know when they're when they've got a SaaS business or a tech enabled service business between eh, two and fifteen million dollars ARR or something like that. Right. And so that's where you know you and I have connected on Tiny Seed. And and you know folks listening to the podcast kind of already know a, a little bit about Tiny Seed. It's it's the first startup accelerator designed for bootstrappers. We try to give you know, founders, uh, a year of runway. It's a remote accelerator. And yeah, you know, it, it's an idea that has been floating around for years. And I never wanted to do a lot of the investor side, right? And didn't really have the expertise to run, to raise a funding round and that kind of stuff. And then you and I connected back in April at, at MicroConf in Vegas. And this was something that intrigued you to start what what became Tiny Seed. I think folks who listen know why I'm doing it. You know, this is just a continuation of, of everything I've done for the past 15 years or whatever. It's me putting more money where my mouth has been. But for you, what you know, what's your interest in in being part of, of something like Tiny Seed? Well, I think there's just a gap in the market there for those kind of companies. Like I think in terms of funding structure and in terms of support. I mean, I think the way that I think about the space is it's very similar to where Companies like, uh, you know, Y Combinator or First Round were in 2005, 2006. Like, it's becoming more and more clear to me that there are, you know, incredible businesses to be built, which can be super profitable and, and sort of take care of their investors and their founders and their employees and everything that sort of fall outside the traditional VC sort of funding structure with, you know, a series, you know, now it's pre-seed and seed and A and B and C. And I really think that given the, you know, what you built around MicroConf and your community and, and the fact that the, the sort of the uh, institutional capital that's coming in are interested in buying those kind of companies potentially. I think that's an exciting opportunity. And honestly, yeah, I just want to help people be able to take their business from, you know, just a sidebar project to something they can they can dedicate their time uh, full time to yeah. And, you know, I think you came up with a really good example early on and you said, you know, how many founders do you meet at MicroConf or at other conferences who are basically trying to do it on the side? And a lot of folks have a spouse, they have a house, they might have a kid, they have a full-time job, so they have responsibilities mortgage. and that mortgage. Yep. And they just can't 
you know, I say can't, but it's really, really hard to upset that and either move to the Bay Area or some other tech center for three months to do an accelerator or to try to raise a round of funding on the side, or they're just kind of, they're tooling away on, on an idea. And three months later, it's, it's no better off than when they started. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, like the, the standard prototypical YC startup founder, at least that's the way it used to be. Maybe it's a little bit different now, but it's like, you got to be 23 willing to work, you know, 80, 90 hour weeks and uh, just give up everything else. Of course, I don't think that's the only way to build a profitable business, and 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 I, I really like to see uh, to support that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I kind of jokingly have called what we're starting with Tiny Seed. I've I've been calling it startup funding for the rest of us because it it kind of fits in the model, right? It's startups for the rest of us. The whole point of that uh, of the name of this podcast is that folks who listen to it want to build startups. But we aren't in that mainstream, let's raise venture funding, like, you know, like you said, 90 hour a week, series A, series B, $100 million, you know, or billion dollar valuation. Like some of us don't want to do that. And, and, and it's that alternative. And I think that, you know, the key thing is we've, a lot of us have noticed, I mean, you noticed, I've noticed, we have other folks, you know, that are launching similar things that are similar to, to Tiny Seed. It's like, we're all noticing this tectonic shift in both bootstrapping in that bootstrapping is getting harder, especially SaaS, because it's getting more competitive. It's not impossible, but it's it's harder than it was two, three, four, five years ago. So it's getting harder. And funding sources are becoming more prevalent. You know, there's more money being thrown at things. And in fact, so much money being thrown into venture capital or private equity that it's spilling over and looking for other places to go. Where Where's the opportunity for that money to go? And I, you know, I'll speak for myself here. I believe this is like a great opportunity for, you know, a great place for it to go that is virtually untapped to date. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think like it's super hard if you have a have a business, SaaS business that's doing, I don't know, two, three thousand, four, five thousand dollars a month. It's not enough to to live on in most places. Certainly not in where I live in the Bay Area. But going out and raising funding for those kind of businesses is almost impossible. Like you're, you're not even get the time of day from a traditional VC because they look at the business and say, Oh, you know, it's a nice life, nice lifestyle business you have there. Uh, your other sources of funding tends to be okay, friends and family. If you have wealthy friends and family, that's great. But uh, on the other end, you often end up with kind of an ad hoc set of angels, and it, it's it's hard to do to actually align incentives for founders and, and investors that are trying to trying to operate in the space. Yeah, that's right. And what's interesting is that something I don't think you know if you're not in the space then you don't realize how quickly things have changed and that they are constantly changing. I think back, so I grew up in the Bay Area until, I'm trying to think, it was the mid-90s and then I went to college up in Sacramento. And so I still have ties to the, to the, to the place. I never did a startup there, but I very much know how, that, you know how the Bay Area works. And I remember in the 90s when I was, let's say, late teens, early 20s and just thirsting to, to do a startup, it was like you could have friends and family contribute money. And I had no friends and family with any money. So I, that was off, off the plate for me. You could try to find angels. And of course, there was no angel list back then. So it was literally going to meetings and, you know, there were, well, there was meetings and such, and there were angel groups. And then there, there was venture capital, obviously, right? Because a lot of checks were written in the late 90s. But as far as I know, that was kind of it. If you wanted to start a, a software startup at the time, there were no accelerators till 2005, right? So that's only 13 years ago. There was no, we were just talking, there was no debt financing for SaaS until maybe two years ago, right? There's Lighter Capital and Bigfoot Capital and a few others, but you couldn't get freaking debt financing from a bank. No, you couldn't go into a bank and say, hey, I have the SaaS business. It's me to make in $20,000, $30,000 a year. Can you lend me enough money to do anything? That, that was never going to work. 
And actually, like, this was true. I mean, YC, I did YC in 2008. And, and even then, people were still like, you know, at the time, the original terms, I think, were like, I think it was $5,000 plus 5,000 times the number of founders for 6 or 7%, something like that. And, and like people, the people who were in sort of the angel and VC investing world, they, they laughed at that. They were like, what are you talking about? Like, of course, that's nowhere near enough money to do anything with. Like, what are you, what are you even bothering about? But I think YC really proved out that model that, you know what? Yeah, you, with a little bit of money and some great, you could you go after this. And I, I sort of think the opportunity uh, is similar, but, but in sort of a different place where, you know, what we're going after is not, you know, the next Facebook or Instagram or whatever. It is the next... Uh, Twenty to fifty million dollars SaaS business that you probably haven't heard of unless you you know work in the industry where it's it's prevalent or is being used. Yeah, and I mean even you know in our financial models, having SaaS apps grow into a, a three, four, five million dollar business is still a pretty nice win. It's a nice win for from an investor perspective, but it's also a really good win for the founder or founders themselves, right? Because they can either, they're given the profit margin, you know, you, you're experienced with quite a few SaaS apps. It's like the net profit on these things is substantial. And so whether a founder decides to exit and, and sell the business or whether they decide to just pull distributions off of it, there's a lot of, I, I think there's rewards to be had that would be, almost be, they would be laughed at or at least chuckled at in the Bay Area, because it's like oh, a lifestyle business, right? $5 million a year. But man, if you're pulling $2 million off that, like what? That's life-changing for a lot of us, you know? Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the margins, once you get to a certain size and, and you know, you, you decide to focus on, on, on cash flow instead of necessarily growing at all costs, like, yeah, like the margins will be 30 to 50%. And I think the fundamental shift that we're seeing and, and trying to be behind is you can align both investors and founders in a better way by instead of saying, okay, like the only way anyone gets paid is by exit. So in that case, that means the VC or whatever who's fiber funding you will sort of try to push you to try to grow as quickly as possible and have a, a big as exit as possible. But if you could have a, a different structure that's supported by the fact that these SaaS businesses often throw off those, this, this kind of cash, then you could do a, a profit share as well as an equity piece. And, and it sort of aligns the, the founders and the investors in, a, in, I think, in a really nice way. Yeah, so... You know, I think all that to say, while we're we are talking about tiny seed today, you and I both think we foresee that as the future moves forward, that this is a shift, and that there will obviously there'll still be venture capital and accelerators the way we know it today. But it's like this new this new market opens up, and it's this alternative form of funding where we've traditionally had bootstrapping and venture capital. And there was angel along the way and you could self-fund. We could talk about how self-funding is different or the same as, as bootstrapping, but there's this, this new kind of third option that I believe has viability. Half of my angel investments are essentially in startups like this. They're in these SaaS apps that I never thought or hoped would become unicorns. But if they get to 5 million, 10 million AR, ARR annual run rate or annual recurring revenue, however you, say, you know, whichever you prefer, it's a win for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there are just a lot more businesses like that out there. Like I think even just in the United States, but even worldwide, like there, are industry, there are so many things left to automate and basically turn into a, a SaaS process that there could be you know, an order of magnitude more of these kind of businesses than there are VC-backable firms and business ideas. 
Yeah, it's like the long tail of startup funding, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been really interesting. Yeah, and it's it's not like people aren't you know raising money to go out and, and build these kinds of businesses. It's they are. It's just that that's certainly the way that it's getting done in the in the valley now is that you basically at the end towards the end of your deck throw up oh you know and uh, two slides that says and then we go to the moon you know we'll become a billion dollar company even if you don't necessarily believe it. And for the for the founder, you know, for the founders that can raise money that way, that's great. But it doesn't necessarily then align with the investor because, you know, the investor, if you get if you in the traditional structure, if you put in five hundred thousand dollars in, a, say, a non-cap safe or something, then you'll end up even if the company gets to, say, ten million dollars and is throwing up five million dollars in cash every year and the, the founders just decide to hold on to it. Then as an investor, you get nothing. You never, I mean, <laughs> even in an acquisition, you might just get your $500,000 back with interest, which it's it's easy to look at it from the founder side and say, you know, these are founder-friendly terms. But in order to make this like a, a really a growth market, you need to align both the investors and the founders in, in a good way. Yeah, that's a good, it's a good point you bring up. I mean, I think we've seen, we're seeing different models. Indy.vc has kind of their model and the way they structure it. And then, you know, you see the the debt financing, like I said, lighter capital, Bigfoot capital, I think there's a few others. And that's different. And those require a personal guarantee, right on on the part of the founder. In some cases, yeah, I, I want to speak for every single uh, debt financing deal, but a lot of them do. Yeah, right. And, you know, what you and I have arrived at through conversations with both the investor side and the founder side is this model that was really pioneered by Rand Fishkin with Spark Toro. And, you know, he has essentially open sourced the terms. If you search SparkToro fundraising terms, I'm, in, I'm an, an angel investor in SparkToro, full disclosure, but we adopted those or something very close to it because it makes sense from an investor perspective, right? So the, the return is there and you're not going to have that safe situation you just talked about where you put in 500K and then you get nothing back, right? If they hold on to it. But at the same time, it, it almost by definition is founder friendly because Rand you know, came up with it. I mean, maybe he and his co-founder, but it's like he wouldn't have come up with something that wasn't in his interest, you know? Exactly. And, you know, like, I, I think I, I think the model that he come up with is, is pretty brilliant. And it's, it's sort of what we were looking around for and trying to structure. And it's been super helpful to talk to him and, and talk why he did it and, and, and get his thoughts on it. But I think the, fundamentally what it does is it, it essentially allows the founder to decide to reinvest, you know, operating profit into the company as it's growing, if that's what they want to do. And then only when they decide, okay, I'm going to I'm going to start taking cash distributions and, and taking more capital out of the company. Only at that point does the investor start to participate. And I think that that aligns. I think that aligns investor and founder uh, incentives uh, really well. Yeah, that makes sense. So one question I have for you, I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it so you know we can talk it through. But you and I could have just started like a seed fund, right? Which is for for the listeners, it's it's you raise some money and you write some checks to some to some founders or some companies, and maybe you fund one this month and one in three months, and you, you build up a portfolio, but that's kind of how a fund works. But we have opted to start an accelerator, which is having a cohort or a group of companies that come together and they go through it. It's, it's similar to the YC or the, you know, the Techstars or 500 Startups model. And there's a lot more mentorship and it's like a program, right? And, and typically YC, you move, uh, typical accelerator, you move to a location and it's three months long. We're going to do a remote accelerator and it's going to be 12 months long, assuming that, you know, you hit some milestones and such. But why, why did we do that? You know, why were you interested in doing that instead of just doing the traditional kind of seed fund approach? I mean, I think the key the key difference is that you know, having done YC, I know how powerful it is to have a cohort that just you know that can support you, that you can 
they're basically going through the same stuff that you're doing. And I think that in and of itself is super valuable. And of course, there's always bound to be some sort of an internal competition among the, the, the founders, which that's also helpful in its own way. And I think having like a, a defined structure around it and saying, okay, you know, we're also going to come in and provide, you know, world-class mentorship that's, you know, honestly, probably pretty opinionated about like, this is the best way, how to do 80% of what you need to do with content. This is how you do 80% of what you need to do with, with paid advertising or SEO or whatever. And I think that that sort of structure adds more value to the to the founders themselves and make them, you know, more likely to succeed, which is ultimately what we're looking for. Yeah, and I think... I mean, like, as you know, we've, we've had inbound interest from, from founders, which have probably, you know, companies that are too big to, to really make sense in the current structure. And, and they just, they want it mostly for the mentorship. So I, I think that's valuable in and of itself and just makes the, makes the, uh, the companies more likely to succeed. Yep. Good answer. It's like you've been asked that question before or something. It's almost like I've been on the phone and told that story a number of times. <laughs> yeah, it's well rehearsed at this point. <laughs> Yeah. So what's interesting, I mean, obviously we've, you know, we've talked about how, you know, I guess we haven't said this explicitly, but like, I don't think something like Tiny Seed would have worked or could have worked 10 years ago. You know, I don't think SaaS was mature enough. I don't think the community was there. I don't think that, you know, there were other places for the money to go. I mean, there's a bunch of, of reasons. I, you know, oftentimes we hear about three or four startups all going after the same thing at once. Like when Fitbit and uh, what was the watch? Pebble was on Kickstarter and the Apple Watch. It's like, why is everyone coming up with watches? Well, it's like, because it was a, you know, a confluence of, of factors, right? It was finally the stuff was cheap enough, the hardware. Finally, the whatever, the screens were good enough. There's stuff that comes together where suddenly it's like, you couldn't have done this three years ago. And I don't know if Tiny Seed would have been successful a few years back, but I feel like the reception and the response we've gotten so far, both from investors and companies, it kind of indicates to me that like, hopefully this is the right right time for this, you know? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously. <laughs> Otherwise I yeah. wouldn't be doing it. I know. And that's the thing I've been trying to be careful with is like, I certainly when I blog or when I talk in the podcast, I don't want to sound like, Hey, I'm, I'm just tooting my own horn and saying, Oh yeah, this is a tectonic shift. So you should buy into this. But the whole reason that you and I are basically going all in on this thing, when we have a bunch of other things we could be doing is that we believe, you know, by definition, we believe it's a tectonic shift that, that this is what's happening. And you know, that's how we can justify going all in on it. Right. Yep, yep. So yeah, you know, one question that I've been asked about Tiny Seed is like, how is it different than than a typical accelerator, right? What you know, why would I go with Tiny Seed versus any of the others, five hundred startups or, or you know, Y Combinator or any of the others you could you could find? And we have six here. I'm guessing over time there will be more, but the one I mentioned already is that we're going to be remote by default. Now we we've talked about doing probably three in-person gatherings where we get everybody together. I'd imagine we do one early on because, you know, having that FaceTime with people kind of starts to solidify a cohort. And so so it is remote. And the advantage that that, that has, I mean, obviously it's advantages and disadvantages, right? Because the disadvantage is you don't have that face-to-face time all the time like you would with a typical accelerator. The advantages, much like starting a fully remote company, is our talent pool and our you know, essentially the companies we can back are much more far reaching, you know, and it's folks that you and I run into at microconf that perhaps can't. You know, I think in part it's it's just, it's a a more scalable model. I mean, not to disparage accelerators, but to be honest with you, some accelerators are in, in part seem to be more geared towards being a booster for the city they're in rather than, you know, trying to help the companies in an optimal fashion. 
and really, I think with a remote model, you know, you keep basically you keep the social support network that you need for founders going through this anyway. They already have that in place with their family and friends. And you also keep, you know, uh, expenses low. I mean, that's a that's a big part of it as you go through it. If you have a, have a year's worth of runway, it's better to, to not have to move somewhere, not have to, you know, uproot your, your family, your friends and your expenses uh, during the process. Right. And that, you know, you touched on differentiator number two is that unlike most accelerators that are three months long, you know, we look to do it for a year, basically to have this, this cohort and this community built over the course of a year. So you get 10 companies or, or 12 companies or whatever, and they're on two to four calls a month. There's some office hour calls, right? It's all Zoom video stuff. But they, they build that mastermind relationship, that friendly competition, or even just that friendly, you know, the, the kind of you have my back kind of relationship. And it gives you runway to quit that day job, right? Because that's what the, the funding is for. But it gives you that 12 months. We know how long SaaS takes. And I was just talking to someone and I realized that venture capitalists give you a lot of money and then they want your timetable to compress, right? So they want you to do more in a shorter amount of time, but they, they can justify that by saying, well, you have a bunch of money, go do that. Now, if you're running Instagram or Twitter or you know whatever else, maybe that can happen. But SaaS traditionally doesn't work like that. Right. I mean, Slack, it works like that. There's a couple other SaaS apps. Most SaaS apps take, we've seen it over and over, years and years and years, you know, and they take six months, 12 months to get traction. And then it takes years over time to compound and grow. And so our view is that the longer we are able to allow people to build this, that the better off the results will be. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it also ties into what is the nature of most accelerators? Like, what is the goal when it comes out of it? Like, the goal on Demo Day at YC is that you raise your, your next funding. And that takes about three months and you have enough things to show that you can raise the next series of funding. Versus, you know, what we're hoping to do is you don't necessarily have to step on that venture track. You could basically build a profitable, sustainable business. And we think like 12 months is, is probably what it takes to go from something small to something that potentially can cover your cover your expenses so you don't have to go back to the day job or, or, or start consulting again. Yep. And the third differentiator is really this lack of Series A pressure. So Series A is the, you know, the first venture round people raise. We're giving multiple options. You know, these founders, as we've said, can, can pull dividends out and they'll get, they'll get a percentage and, you know, the investors will get a percentage. Over time, they could, I'm sure some will exit at some point. It's not something that we're going to force or, or push people into, but sometimes getting a liquidity event is really the right choice, you know, for the, for the founder. And obviously they would, you know, they and the investors would, uh, would make out there. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's probably misunderstood by people who aren't in sort of the, the, the Silicon Valley VC world, like how much a part of a founder's job on the venture track is to raise money. <laughs> you know, like there's a series A, but now there's like a series pre-seed and then a series seed and then a series A and then series B and then series, you know, whatever. And and essentially, uh, most of the time you raise just enough money so that you run out of money in 18 months. And then once you're done uh, fundraising, you maybe have six months and then you have to start fundraising again for the next, you know, for the next round because you're you're trying, like I say, to compress it as much as possible and go as fast as possible and in order to grow as fast as you possibly can because that is the only model that works for uh, that kind of a venture investment. Yep. 
And so, you know, as, as I was saying, tiny seed companies can, they can certainly pay dividends, they could exit, or some may decide that they want to raise another round, right? This is not something that we, we would say, no, don't do that. I mean, it, it's going to be the right option for some companies, but it's just having the optionality to do it or not do it, I think is what, you know, it's like, make, make a good choice, you know? Exactly. And I mean, like you, you'll find you, you probably maybe six months in, you're like, oh, holy crap, this is a much bigger opportunity than I thought. In which case, okay, like we'll be supportive. We'll say, okay, we'll help you. We'll introduce you to the VCs who want to be excited about being part of the next round. And uh, yeah, that, that'll, that's fine too. But there's no expectation that you either do that or die trying. Yep. And that's, you know, of my six, I have six investments that I would essentially call this model, right? This more sustainable scene startup model. And one of them has done exactly that. They were, they have raised subsequent rounds and it's because the opportunity got really big, really quick. And it was unexpected at the start, you know, so certainly the right choice for them. The fourth key differentiator is this one's interesting. I'm wondering if this is going to be controversial, but like I, I don't have a bias against single founders, and I know that a lot of accelerators do. They, you know, that I think the phrase I've heard is like the journey is hard, the journey is long to get to a billion dollars. Most single founders aren't able to do it. And in my experience, I've seen a lot of single founders be very successful at sustainably building, you know, these seven and low eight figure businesses. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think in part it's a it's a cult, it's sort of a historical artifact because of what happened in in oh five oh six. So basically, it was Y Combinator and and Paul Graham really there who sort of espoused this this almost hard nine hard clan rule that you had to be two, yeah, at least you know, like you were never going to make it without being two founders, and and that actually I think impacted every single subsequent accelerator and seed investment uh, around. But I, but I'm with you. I mean, the people I see that are successful to to in this space aren't you know usually the, it's it's one person at least one very, one lead person and maybe a, a later co-founder that comes on board. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. The fifth uh, differentiator is really, you know, seven figure ARR. So, you know, millions, multiple millions and low eight figures. So let's say 10 million to 20. So I, I think you and I've kind of talked about, Hey, if, if, it, if we think a SaaS company has a potential and even non SaaS, we're not going to be hundred percent SaaS. I bet we'll have others that are, that are not, but that is definitely an area of, of our expertise. If they can get, you know, one between one and 20 million, that's a win for a lot of people. It's, it can be a win for the founders, can be a win for the employees if they have equity and certainly, you know, can be a win from our perspective as well. Yeah, and I think and I think that makes sense. I mean, that's the key differentiator. Like, you have to have an investment structure that, which which I don't think really fundamentally exists currently, is you have to have an investment structure that can support those kind of successes. Yeah, that's right, and that's where we've had to go. Kind of, I'll say, go back to first principles and say, what is founder friendly? What also works from a financial model perspective, because we we won't get investors. The fund will not exist if we can't show that hey, there's a there's a good likelihood that there will be a there will be a really good return for you, you know, and for us, right? You and I, we're putting in time, we're putting in money. We have to believe that ourselves, or else it's not worth doing. Yeah, I and mean, it's a it's a risk reward thing. Like it's easy to look at from the founder side and said, oh, I'm, this is this I'm percentage, I'm giving up too much, too little, whatever. But, but fundamentally, for, for most investors, the, the question isn't like, do I do this or nothing? It is, do I do this or, you know, do I put this in my buddy's, you know, real estate investment trust where, you know, okay, the, the return isn't, isn't as high or is the potential return isn't as high, but it's much less uh, risky than, than backing, you know, uh, you know, basically small SaaS businesses. 
Yep. And the the last differentiator we'll talk about today, as we're coming close on time, is this this idea that, you know, I've been talking with my wife, Sherry, for quite some time. A lot of folks know her as Zen, as Zen founder, and she's a psychologist. And so, and also now, uh, you know, essentially a consultant to startup founders and executives and entrepreneurs about kind of staying sane while building a company. And so, we've been throwing around this idea of like the sane startup. It, it's a startup that values people over results, right? It, it has reasonable work hours expectations. So it's not 90 hour weeks. It's a startup that allows you to build something interesting and fun and profitable and lucrative, but you avoid burnout while doing that. You maintain your family relationships, your friend relationships to grow at a healthy clip, you know, instead of, I mean, we see some startups out there that grow at unhealthy clips to the point where they're doing shady things, you know, they're doing unlicensed insurance sales, you know, or they're like sacrificing their employees, something, you know, a sane startup, I think has ample vacation time. And it just cares about people in general, right? And we, we've seen these, right? There's examples of them, bare metrics, I would say, buffer. That's how we grew drip. Spark Toro, I imagine is going to be that way. Basecamp, you, you know, balsamic. I love this idea, whatever we call it, you know, whether we call it sane startup or not, it's a company that that cares about the people over the results, but is also you know can be a successful and, and profitable company. Yeah, and it, and on top of that, it can it can do it in sort of the non traditional places. You know, it can do it in a mid sized town somewhere that isn't isn't coastal. Like that's a, I think that's a big part of it too. Is you don't have to be in you know in Silicon Valley in order to have these kind of successful businesses. Yep, that's a big big piece to it. I think that's where we you know we've talked about is the untapped potential of this. There's a, there is a lot about location, and then there's a lot about kind of quality of life that I think we can have the best of both worlds. I mean, that's our hypothesis here, you know, is that we can have the best of these worlds and yet still build profitable businesses that are interesting, fun to work on and all that stuff. So thanks so much, Einar, for uh, joining me today. If folks want to keep up with you online, aside from going to tinyseed.com, where they can follow you and I, where would they hit you up online? You should check out Aina Volsa at uh, on Twitter. It's probably the easiest. I sort of uh, went off that for a bit, but I'm seemingly back on now. <laughs> yeah, arguing with people on Twitter. That's my uh, my. Default. Oh goody! You can do that, and I will not argue with people on Twitter. How about that? That's kind of my. <laughs> it's kind of my status quo. So your your name is E I N A R V O L L S E T, and we will link that up in the show notes as well. Cool. And if you have a question for us, you can call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.